Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. It's Raina Jadav here with Health Boot Camps. And today we are here with Dr. Peter Osborne doing the book masterclass on his book, which I read, which was instrumental in my healing, No Brain, No Pain. And it's the 31-day program for eliminating the root cause of chronic pain. Dr. Osborne, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. This is a pleasure being here. Well, it's a it's a very serious topic. It's a huge problem. And you know, I thank you for writing a book that gets to the heart of it for at least a lot of the people out there. Let's start with the first chapter. So the first chapter is what is the grain pain connection and how did you even come up with that relationship between the two? Well, I started off, my story is very interesting. Before I wrote the book, I was working in rheumatology in the VA hospital in Houston. Mm. And, um, all the people going through the, the rheumatology ward, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, spondyl arthritis, dermatomyositis, all these chronic degenerative, very, very painful types of autoimmune diseases that affect the joints and the muscles and soft tissue. And they were just being treated with steroids and, and uh, cancer medications and immune suppressants and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And nobody ever got better. Their pain was managed great, but their quality of life was poor. The side effects of the medications destroyed their bones and destroyed their skin and had so many other negative and derogatory side effects. I just, I just couldn't see um, just being quiet about that and being, and that, being okay with that. So my, one of my first, once I left the hospital, because they wouldn't let me do any nutrition, um, we went round and round. Is one of my first, it, you know, it really is, but it is the way that it is. And, um, you know, one of my first patients was a little girl and I wrote about her in the book mm-hmm. and uh, her name was Ginger. She's nine years old. She comes to me. I'm like the ninth doctor. She's got a terminal diagnosis of juvenile, rheum- juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So, her, you know, her mom has literally been told by the rheumatologist, go home and get ready for your daughter's funeral. Oh, my God. Could you imagine that, right? And, and, and so what makes me so mad is that I wasn't the first doctor. I was, the, I was the, the last doctor in this chain of many, many doctors over many, many years because this little girl had this disease from early on. That's what juvenile onset means. And so her knees were the size of softballs and she was a tiny little thing. She couldn't get around in the, as a child, she couldn't crawl. She couldn't go to the playground and play. She had a permanent stint embedded in her arm because she was in and out of the hospital so frequently for pain treatments. And here I'm the last person, you know, and so she comes to me and and what we find with her is we find that she's gluten sensitive and we eliminate gluten from her diet. And of course her pain starts to go away. We get the stent out of her arm She's off of all of her medications. This was, you know, 17 years ago. So today, this little girl is now a young woman who's graduated high school and college and has gone on from a six-month death sentence, right, to going on and living a fruitful life, all because of diet change. So when I say the grain pain or the gluten pain connection, it very, very, very much is a real thing that people don't realize that food can be your best friend if it's nourishing, but it can be your biggest enemy if you're sensitive to it or allergic to it. That's incredible. And what grains do you refer to when you say no grain, no pain? So gluten's clearly one, so that's your wheat, et cetera. What else? So all grain, corn, rice, gluten, wheat, barley, oats, sorghum, spelt, triticale, teff, all grain, because by definition, all grains contain a form of gluten. And this is one of the other myths and, and, and that's out there is that only wheat, barley, and rye contain gluten that causes damage. But the reality is there are over, well, to date, there are about a thousand different forms of gluten that have been discovered in all grains. And for example, corn gluten has been shown to cause the same celiac villus atrophy as wheat gluten. Uh, Rice gluten has been shown to cause something called enterocolitis, which is inflammation of the colon, right? So we have all this wonderful research and all this clinical research that's been done that shows that people with gluten sensitivity shouldn't just avoid wheat, barley, and rye, but they should really be on a grain-free diet because it's the protein, the family of proteins called glutens that actually trigger the inflammatory cascade in the GI tract and in other tissues of the body creating pain. 
And there's no real way to test for like a rice gluten sensitivity or a reaction, right? This is all something that you just have to eliminate and experience for yourself. Or are there tests out there that someone could do to figure out, you know, it's sort of a grain sensitivity test. Yes, it's genetic. Genetic testing can help identify gluten sensitivity genes. There are uh, two major genes that we look at. They're called HLA-DQ genes, and they're on chromosome six. And there are certain patterns on these genes or certain variants on these genes. If a person has them, what's going to happen is that person's immune system will view the family of gluten proteins as an enemy, not as a friend. And so when that person is exposed to those proteins, their body's genetics naturally say that that's an enemy, so they mount an immune response. So think of gluten sensitivity. Don't even think of it as a disease. It's not an illness. It's wow. a state of genetics. If you have the genes and you expose your body to the glutens, then your genes are going to attack those glutens on purpose because that's what your genes are programmed to do. How incredible. Now, does 23andMe catch this? No. No, you have to, it's not that, so 23andMe does, they do some SNP, what are called SNP tests, single nucleotide polymorphism tests, which can pick up on certain variants, but they do not test for all the variants associated with gluten sensitivity, and they test the variants associated with celiac disease, but there are a whole other set of variants associated with something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and 23andMe doesn't pick up on that. That's part of the problem is people will get that test done, and it's a great test, but if, if they're celiac negative, it doesn't mean they shouldn't avoid gluten because, again, that test doesn't tell them about non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So where do you get this test done? Glutenfreesociety.org is, uh, is a foundation that we've set up where people can get support going gluten-free, where people can get testing to see if gluten-free diet is right for them. Oh, fantastic. All right. Chapter two, which is where does it hurt getting started and tracking your journey? Dr. Osborne, so tell us a little bit about the core essence of this chapter. Well, we want to make sure that anybody starting our program has a subjective and an objective starting point because you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you're starting from, right? So, you know, if your pain levels are very high, if they're in your shoulders, in your knees, in your spine, uh, if you've got other kinds of pain, we want to track that so that we have an initial starting point. So this gives uh, the reader some information about where, you know, to fill out. It's kind of like a, a form and a diagram and they can track the, their pain, where it hurts, the intensity of their pain, the quality style of their pain, whether it's dull, achy, sharp, etc., so that they can track the changes over the 30-day program. So we're just trying to get a fundamental basis for where a person starts. I'm curious, because you've had so many patients that you've helped, where do majority of the people experience pain? So we actually classify pain in different ways. There's physical manifestations of pain, which can be muscles, joints, uh, which is what most people think of, right? When they think of pain, they think, oh, my neck hurts or oh, my back hurts. So there's the physical manifestation, so musculoskeletal pain or joint pain. But then there's also intestinal pain, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, sharp stabbing, cramping pains. So we, wanna, we also want to make sure we're checking for those. Those are probably two of the most common. Now, there's a third type of pain as well. It's neurological pain, so radicular types of pain. Some people develop neurological numbness and tingling in their hands and their toes and their fingers. Some people have mysterious, sharp stabbing, shooting deep pains in their bones. So we're, again, we're, we're just trying to classify. As far as commonality, probably in my office, and my office is known for musculoskeletal issues. So in my office, because that's what people come to see me for, we see a lot of musculoskeletal pain. You know, I have a friend, a dear friend, whose daughter is complaining of pain, which she says feels like it's in her bones. And again, no diagnosis, all the tests are clear. And if you come across something like that, what, what's, how does it hurt in the bone? It hurts in the bone. Well, this is actually a very, very common manifestation of chronic anemia. So what, what I mean by that is the bone Inside the bone is bone marrow, right? And that's inside the bone marrow are what are called ethroporetic stem cells. They're stem cells that help generate red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. Okay. And so some people, when they're anemic, meaning anemic means that they're not producing adequate blood elements. They're not producing either adequate red blood cells, white blood cells, or platelets. Most people think of anemia as an iron deficiency, right? right? But it's not just an iron deficiency. If your bone marrow is being overstimulated to try to produce more blood elements because you have a deficiency in those blood elements, 
that can actually trigger pain. We see people with chronic anemias. Iron deficiency anemia can do it, but folate deficiency anemia, vitamin B12 deficiency anemia, B6, zinc deficiency anemias can trigger those types of deeper pains. So that's one, that's one answer to that question. There are others, but that's a real common one. Wow, that's really good to know. All right, chapter three, pain caused by grain inflammation. Dr. Osborne, is there a connection between grains and inflammation? And what is it? Lots of them. So what I write about in the book is not only is gluten one of the things that can cause inflammation, we, we dub the term grain inflammation, grain-induced inflammation. Gluten is one of the proteins that we know can trigger it. But there are four other classes of proteins that I write about in the book that are commonly found in grains that have nothing to do with gluten. As an example, there's a family of proteins called ATIs, amylase trypsin inhibitors. These proteins actually shut down the pancreas. They, they prevent the pancreas from secreting enzymes that help a person digest. So in this case, grain inflammation would be an inability to digest the food. So the food rots in the gut, creating a side effect of inflammation and constipation. So that's an example of grain inflammation caused by grain that's not caused by gluten. One of the other examples I can give you is, is the mycotoxins. Grains are very high in mycotoxins. These are toxins produced by mold. They're not the same thing as mold. Mold is a living uh, thing, whereas a mycotoxin is, think of it as an exhaust, an exhaust byproduct of mold. But mycotoxins suppress the immune system. They can upregulate certain components of the immune system, creating, uh, creating an inflammatory response, and they're highly linked to cancer. Oh, so one awesome. of the biggest dietary sources of mycotoxin is grain consumption. So those are just two examples of many examples I talk about in the book on grain inflammation, where the components or elements of grain can actually lead to an inflammatory response systemically in a person's body. And you've, of course, I'm sure have studies where you've proven that someone who had a very high C-reactive protein in a test went off grains and was able to bring those numbers down. Do you see that often? Yeah, we, we see it quite often. C, CRP, C-reactive protein, we see it with ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. We also see it with other inflammatory factors. There's another inflammatory factor called human transforming growth factor beta 1 that we'll see come down when people go on a grain-free diet. There's another one called complement 4A or C4A, which is an inflammatory marker that can also be reduced when people go on a grain-free diet. And as I keep hearing over and over again, you know, inflammation is the cause of pretty much every big disease out there, from heart to diabetes, et cetera. So getting your inflammation under control obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, well, we're on to the next chapter is all about the gut. It's the chapter title, called pain caused by imbalances in the gut. And we're gonna talk about leaky gut as well. Dr. Osborne, tell us a little bit about how is the grain consumption leading to leaky gut? Well, interestingly enough, Harvard researcher, well, he's at Harvard now, Alicio Fasano, so I don't take the credit for researching this, but he identified that gluten actually causes a disruption in a protein Called, called zonulin. So there's this little protein inside your gut called zonulin that gluten can break apart. And think of it like this. If your guts, if your individual gut cells, they stack, in, they stack next to each other and they have these little proteins inside that anchor them together, almost like the Lego blocks, the way you snap them together, right? Well, gluten gets in there, penetrates it, and it breaks that. So what happens is we get these little microscopic pores that open up in between the gut cells. That's oftentimes referred to medically as intestinal hyperpermeability. So if you're a nerd and you want to go look that up, if you type that search in, you'll find a lot of technical information. But the other term is leaky gut, right? Leaky gut means that the contents of the gut lining are quarantined away from the bloodstream. Think of your gut as, as, as part of your insides, but it's not part of your blood. And that from your mouth to your anus, it's a quarantine zone with those tight cells keeping everything out of your bloodstream. So if they break open, now the ingredients of your gut can leach into the, the behind the gut wall, there's this massive quantity of immune cells called gastro-associated lymphoid tissue. And this tissue is designed to basically, it's, it's the, it's the stopgap, right? If, if the gut's leaking, this immune system behind your gut wall tries to stop the damage from spilling over into your bloodstream. But what happens is some of those proteins in our food that we eat and in the bacteria that live inside of our GI tracts, some of those proteins have well, they're similar in size and structure and shape to our tissues. So for example, 
there's a bacterial endotoxin secreted by a type of bacteria called Pseudomonas that can leak in. And if our immune system sees it, we'll attack it. Wow. Unfortunately, this bacterial endotoxin looks a lot like cartilage. Oh, wow. So when our immune system starts attacking that, that Pseudomonas, it then starts to turn around and look at cartilage and say, hey, that looks like the bacterial toxin. Let's go attack it too. Okay. And so then it goes over and it starts to create chronic joint pain through an inflammatory process. That process is called molecular mimicry because the molecule of the toxin, right, mimics our cartilage. So we get molecular mimicry and the immune system turns it against us. That's autoimmune disease. So leaky gut is one of the precursors to the development of autoimmune disease. And that's what this chapter is all about. And that was me. You know, I had uh, autoimmune symptoms, undiagnosed, nothing on the test, but all kinds of symptoms. And at the end of the day, it really was leaky gut. And there was a test. What test do you recommend for someone who is curious to figure out if, if they have leaky gut? And I say this because every conventional doctor that I that I saw and consulted with, including two different GIs, said that they didn't understand the concept of leaky gut. They certainly didn't believe that it. it was just all hocus pocus. So um, sometimes if you go to a conventional medical doctor, they're not going to have even a test for you to do, but functional medicine does have tests. So talk a little bit about what test do you recommend? There are several different types. You can do antibody testing against zonulin and occludin. These are different proteins that, that help seal the tight junctions together in the gut wall. But sometimes those are, those are not the most accurate way. The, the problem with leaky gut is we know it exists. We've, we've identified it. We've researched it. But it's, it's like this. Leaky gut is not caused by the same things every time. It's just like if we lined 1,000 people up and they all had leaky gut, they might all have it for different reasons. So if we, won, if we run one type of lab test where we're looking for one of those reasons, for that person, we may not find it. So again, that's, and a lot of GI doctors won't run any tests not because leaky gut doesn't exist, but because they don't, one, they either don't read the literature because if they read medical literature, they would know it absolutely exists beyond the shadow of a doubt. But two, because of the problem with definitive testing, if I run this test and it's negative, now what? Now you really don't have leaky gut or do you have leaky gut? Right. So there, there are different kinds of sugar absorption tests that we can run. There are protein antibody tests that we can run. But ultimately, we want to know really, and that part of what I talk about in the book is the 11 different causes of leaky gut. So to me, it's more important that a person understands these are the things that cause leaky gut. So no matter who you are, if you're controlling these 11 factors, then you don't have to worry so much about the prolonged leaky gut creating the problem and you can actually seal the gut lining and heal. And what are these 11 causes of leaky gut? Well, one of them is antibiotics, right? So you think about the average person that goes to the buffet and they're eating meat that's, lo that's loaded with antibiotics, they're getting antibiotics without taking antibiotics. Yeah. Uh, chlorine in the drinking water, if, it, if you don't filter your drinking water, is a form of antibiotic. Um, so, so antibiotics is one big cause. We have plastics. The, the chemical compounds in plastic have been shown to cause leaky gut. We have gluten. Gluten is a known factor and a known cause as a protein. Again, I told you this earlier, this was yeah. discovered at Harvard, but it causes leaky gut. Yeah. Interestingly enough, hot beverages can oh. cause leaky gut. That's right. Beverages with hot, hot temperatures causing a temporary breakdown of the gastrointestinal lining. Aggressive exercise, and I'm not talking about like a high intensity interval exercise. I'm talking about the kind where you feel like you want to puke. Oh. Um, you know, you know, if so, you, you see this with football players doing two days and things of that nature where they exercise so aggressively, but aggressive exercise causes leaky gut. So those are some of the things that cause leaky gut that your, your audience can start taking action on right away. That sounds great. All right. Well, we are now off to our next chapter. It's pain caused by grain obesity. Dr. Osborne, is there a connection between grain and weight issues? Absolutely. If you, if you ask any farmer, what's the quickest way to fatten up their cows? They're going to tell you to feed them more grain. What's the quickest way to fatten up the pig? More grain. The quickest way to fatten up the chicken? More grain. So there's a connection in farming, and there's certainly a connection in humans. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons why that connection exists is because a lot of the grain-based products that are out there, aside from gluten, sensitive, gluten sensitivity, a lot of them are super, super high in sugar and carbohydrate the processed ones particularly without much fiber. And so what happens is that person eats those sugars 
in mass quantities because you know our food guide pyramid and most doctors will tell you your diet should be 60 to 70 percent carbohydrate and so people are eating bread pasta cereal donuts thinking i am getting grain it's good for me it's vegetarian right no it's not it's all that excessive carbohydrate does nothing but convert to triglycerides inside your body so if you're over consuming carbs what what happens to those carbs is your body converts them to fat that's what a triglyceride is and then you start storing them now the other component and we talked about this earlier is we talked about grain creating inflammation and one of the side effects of inflammation is a hormone called cortisol mm. now important note here cortisol if you inject somebody with cortisol or if somebody takes an oral corticosteroid hormone what does it do it causes them to swell it causes them to get puffy it causes them to retain water it causes them to gain weight yeah. if you're eating a food every day that causes your body to make more cortisol you're going to gain the weight too. And what happens when a person gains weight? Their joints hurt more because they're carrying more on their shoulders. They're carrying more on their knees. They're carrying more in their hips. So then as they're, as they're gaining weight, they don't want to exercise, right? Because it hurts to exercise. So it's the, they get stuck in this vicious cycle of weight gain caused by overconsumption of grain. Then they're ending up in pain. Then they avoid exercise. Now when they're avoiding exercise, they gain even more weight and the cycle never stops. And then where doctors come in is they give a drug, right? They give a pain medication. And unfortunately, the pain medications, and I'm going to go back to the last chapter, the pain medications, particularly things like ibuprofen, naproxen, so the nonsteroidals, cause leaky gut. That's one of the other causes of leaky gut. So then that sets the stage for pain induced by autoimmunity. So you can see where we're just creating one problem and trying to solve it with a medicine without ascertaining the origin of the issue can create a new problem that makes the first problem even worse. And that's why we have the epidemic that we do. I mean, that's why we have literally millions of people sick with chronic illness because we haven't figured out how to address the root cause of it. So, which is why thank you so much for, again, writing this book and helping people to understand what the root cause might be. Now you say, you know, carbs convert, grains convert to sugar, that creates an issue. Um, I was able to do 15 months with no grains, but I think for the rest of the world, they're horrified at the thought of, of having even a day without some grains. So of the grains that are out there, what is the least harmful one? Like if you were gonna eat a grain, of all the grains out there, what is the one grain you'd say, all right, if you're gonna do an exception, that's the grain I recommend? It's a great question, but I don't deal with exceptions. I deal with I do deal with absolutes because exceptions lead to slippery slopes and if you give a person permission to cheat on the diet with one thing then the next thing that happens is they say well this one can't be that bad either and then that slowly trickles back in so again I go back to testing if you're genetically gluten sensitive there is no exception to the rule okay. if, if you're not genetically gluten sensitive and you're just saying what kind of grain can I eat you just want to make sure that whichever one you're choosing is organic from heirloom seed and it's being properly produced where it's the whole grain in its sprouted form, okay? Otherwise, what happens is you're getting a highly processed grain with other additives and other dough conditioners and other chemicals, and that's not good for you. Right, but you're not gonna pick a, say, teff is better or, um, and, and seeds are different from grains, right? I want to, again, clarify this because I know I used to get confused between what's a grain and what's a seed. And I used to wonder, hey, is chia a grain? And chia is actually a seed. And you're saying seeds are okay, right? They can be and they, and they can't be. So, so from this perspective, well, let me answer the first question. All grains are seeds. Not all seeds are grains. Grains are defined as the seeds of grass, okay? Ah. So that's the differentiation. Now, to answer your second question, are other seeds potential problems? Every seed that we know of has human poisons. Every one. Now, lots of foods have human poisons. Spinach has human poisons. So I, I don't want to scare people away from food and create a food phobia. I just want you to understand that when people gravitate towards seed as a staple food in their diet, massive quantities of chia, massive quantities of flax, right? We hear about these superfoods. Yes. Okay. What ends up happening is understand that the seed does not want to be your food, right? The seed is a life form. It wants to continue the propagation of its own species, not be eradicated by human mouths, right? So inside of every seed lives specialized proteins that are designed to protect the seed from predators. We look at apple seed, for example, we can extract cyanide poison from apple seeds and peach seeds. Uh, or peach pits, right? 
we, there are a number of different types of poisons, arsenic and cyanide and other poisons that we find in all seeds universally. So if you're eating them, it can make your stomach upset and it can make you want to vomit. It can make you have diarrhea, right? So I don't recommend when people are going through no grain, no pain, I don't recommend seeds for the first several months, just if their guts are already in disarray because seeds are hard to digest, right? And if we've got a gut that's already compromised, it would, let me give you another analogy. If your muscles are super sore, right? Because you worked out yesterday and they're so sore, you can barely walk. You're not going to go to the gym and do more exercise today. You're going to take a little time off and let them recover and heal, right? What's well, the same thing with your gut? If your gut is so sore because it's been damaged by years of gluten exposure or years of doing and eating the wrong foods, if you put a bunch of seed-based food in it and you try to get the gut that's already compromised to digest those seeds, it's just going to struggle and have a harder time. That makes a lot of sense. What about hormones? Uh, before we started recording, you had talked about the connection between grains and hormones, and I joked about the fact that, yes, you know, women over 40 like me, uh, we noticed that we can't tolerate grains as much. Uh, if you could shed a little light on that. So there's several hormones that grain can affect. There's studies that show that grain can affect uh, prolactin, a hormone made in the brain. Um, and, and prolactin's important for pregnancy, right? It's important for breastfeeding. A lot of women who, who, who lose their breast milk too soon because they're over consuming, potentially over consuming grain and creating a prolactin problem. Uh, we also sometimes will see estrogen and progesterone disruption in people with grain sensitivity. We know that grain can affect the thyroid. Gluten particularly can affect the thyroid, creating an autoimmune response in the thyroid called Hashimoto's and Graves disease. Which is huge, which is, again, yeah. it's another epidemic now. It's apparently the number one diagnosed autoimmune disease for women. It is, and it's and it's goes back and forth between like the first and the second most common prescription drug is thyroid medication. You know, pain and thyroid medication kind of... Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, it's a very common medication. So... So then we have, you know, then we have other hormone disruption um, and, and two in particular, and these are the two most common, cortisol and insulin. Too much grain and creation of inflammation causes the body to overproduce cortisol, which then leads to hyper weight gain, muscle loss, bone loss. It also leads to an excessive insulin response. Remember, insulin's job is to regulate blood sugar. And what did I say earlier about grain? It's high in sugar. So we eat all this excessive carbohydrate, then our pancreas has to overproduce insulin to keep up and compensate. And when we make so much insulin over time, that's what, that's what people, uh, that's, that's the first step in diabetes, right? By the time a person develops diabetes, their insulin levels have gone down, not up. But pre-diabetes is their insulin is way up, okay? So their insulin levels are, are, are compensating for their bad diet choices. But as, as their bad cho diet choices continue to persist, their pancreas gets tired. Oh, wow. Okay, it only has so much reserve, and then the insulin levels start to drop, and we end up with diabetes. Which is yet another huge crisis in this country. So on the chapter about what to eat and what not to eat, um, Dr. Osborne, my God, so you can't eat grains, you can't eat seeds. Give us a, a full list of what we can eat. So I want, I want the listening audience to expand your minds of possibility here meats, fruits, vegetables, nuts, even some small quantities of seeds, depending on the status of your gut, are all acceptable. If we add all those different options up, we're looking at well over 300 different options if we're talking about what's commercially available in most grocery stores. The fact of the matter, though, is, is that most people eat less than 10 fruits and vegetables, and their, their diets are so restrictive in that way, and they just haven't expanded their mind. And there's a learning curve with this. Part of that learning curve is, what do I do with green chard? What do I do with rainbow chard? What do I do with a turnip, right? Because people just don't cook with them, so they don't know how to cook with them or prepare them to where they'll taste well or taste good. Mm -hmm. And so taste is relative, as you know. And so not, you know, not every vegetable or, or fruit is a person going to like. But my, my advice is that going grain-free, um, you know, I, that's why I put recipes in the book. I put 31 different recipes, one for every day, okay? But going grain-free requires a learning curve of learning how to prepare and learning how to, how to cook foods. And, uh, and, and so that's part, of, that's part of the adventure. That's part of the excitement is you get to try something new. You get to try new flavors and new aromas and new herbs and spices yeah. and really mix it up. What are your favorite foods when it comes to really trying to heal from pain? Gosh, I, I like meat. I mean, um, 
you know, I like meat because most people, let me rephrase, not most, but a lot of the people that I see, when they come in, they are in a state of chronic catabolic breakdown. Their bodies are eating into their own muscle tissue to try to fight the war against the food that they're eating, right? Yeah. So, so imagine your body, it does, it's running out of resources because you're not feeding it right. And so it steals the proteins out of the muscle tissue to fight the war because all of these wars are immunological wars. They're immune system wars that require vast quantities of protein antibodies to fight. And this is what, why people with cancer waste. That's called cachexia. They waste away. This is why people with autoimmune disease, initially they're overweight, but over time they start to waste away. They start to really, their muscle mass starts to deplete. There are a lot of people who are um, what we call skinny fat. They're, they're thin, but they're under muscle. They don't have muscle tone because their bodies have been eating their muscle tissue. So I like protein, uh, high biological value protein to help that person's immune system recover, to help them as they start to become capable of doing more physical activity to build lean muscle. I'm not talking about building Herculean bodies. I'm talking about building lean muscle right. so that their bodies redevelop resiliency Okay, for the future, because the number one factor, if we could take away all the science and take away all the noise, if we could choose only one thing mm -hmm. that would keep a person alive longer, pretty much everybody in science agrees. There's, there's two, but one of them is maintaining your muscle mass as you age. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep. The, and the name for not doing that is sarcopenia, means age-related muscle loss. Okay, so the, one of the factors that we can predict in early death is if a person has sarcopenia. The other one is, is eating too much, just overeating, right? So that's, that's the other one is, one, don't ever eat too much. If you want to do the least quantity of damage to yourself, stay physically active as long as you can in your life and don't use your age as an excuse to not exercise or not be moving. Mm -hmm. And two, don't ever overeat. Stay away from the buffets and the gluttonous you know, food celebrations that so many people want to put on and, and eat less as opposed to eating more. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, on our next one, we are going to talk about supplements. But before we go, Dr. Osborne, give us your favorite recipe. What, what do you eat in a given day? Talk, tell us about your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So every, every morning, I, so I always start off my day with, with, a, with a high intensity interval training exercise. So I, I, I knock that out first thing. And then okay. I drink. How long do you do that? Uh, it varies from 15 to 40 minutes. Um, depends on, I go to, I have a gym that I go to, it's a CrossFit gym. And so whatever they've got programmed for the day, I do it. Oh, okay. And, um, so then I drink a protein shake and the protein shake has collagen protein and it has grass fed beef protein in it. And, uh, and I mix that with strawberries and water and, and, uh, the strawberries are frozen organic strawberries. So it blends a nice shake. And well, so that's my question for you. So what protein do you take given, you know, most of the proteins that, that are out there that are popular anyway have whey in them? Yeah. So we actually, I have my own formulation. It's, oh. it's, uh, it's called ultra pure protein okay. is what it's called. And, and if anybody wants to pick something like that up, they can go to glutenfreesociety.org and hit the shop button. Uh, it's gluten-free, it's grain-free, it's dairy-free, it's legume-free. It, it fits all the rules for the no grain, no pain process. But that's my post-workout drink. Okay. And then for breakfast, I do a couple of eggs, uh, either hard-boiled or scrambled. And uh, if I scramble them, I'll use a little olive oil. And then uh, I use a big pile of spinach or chard or leafy greens, uh, always organic. And then I sprinkle pecans or, or, or almonds uh, over the top. And I, and I put blueberries over the top of that. I don't use salad dressing at all. The blueberries are my salad dressing. And, uh, and, and depending on what else they have, I like purple cabbage to so sometimes I use shredded purple cabbage and, uh, and put that over the top of it or shredded carrots over the top of it. So, uh, that's, that's usually breakfast and, uh, and I don't eat my breakfast until around noon. So I'll drink my shake right after my workout and I won't eat my breakfast till around noon. So really I, I, I don't, everybody says breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It's really not. Most people do really well with a late breakfast or a, more of a lunch. Uh, and what that does is it gives your gut time to rest, right? Just part of the healing process. And then for dinner, it's it's typically some type of meat and, and several different types of vegetables. So uh, the meat will always be, if it's beef, it will always be grass-fed. If it's chicken, it will always be free-range organic. If it's turkey, the same thing. If it's fish, it will always be well-caught. Or if we will have wild game if we've got, you know, sometimes we have family members that, that bring us venison or elk or other things. So we'll eat you know, we'll eat those things when they're available as well. 
and then uh, vegetables, just depending on what's in season. We really try to do seasonal rotation pretty well. So if the asparagus is coming in, we like to get, get the asparagus or um, other things that we like. We love cabbage. I'm a German. So uh, we do a lot of cabbage, a lot of uh, shredded cabbage and sauerkraut and things of that nature. We love Brussels sprouts and cruciferous like broccoli and cauliflower. So, you know, it just depends on, on, on what my wife is in the mood for cooking that night. Or if she asks me, I'll give her my opinion. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very meat and vegetable heavy. What about a treat? I didn't hear a treat in there. What do you, you do? Didn't. No, I mean, from a treat perspective, fruit is a treat for me. Um, you know, so some of my favorite fruits uh, are the berry family. So blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, uh, strawberries, also good when they're in season. And then uh, additionally to that, occasionally I'll have a banana. I don't do too many of those, but, but I do if I'm really, if I've really sweated a lot in a day, I'll have a banana because of the electrolyte properties. Cantaloupe's an excellent treat, full of potassium. Uh, so again, if you sweat a lot, cantaloupe's a great treat for the summertime. Watermelon's a great treat for the summertime. If you can find it again, always organic. Um, so fruit is really the biggest treat that, that uh, for us. Now we do sometimes, we'll do like little paleo treats. One of the things I like to do is I like to take um, peaches and uh, slice them up and put them in a, in a pan. And then we'll sprinkle a little bit of almond flour and cinnamon over the top of that. And then we'll cook them, we'll bake them like a cobbler. And yeah. so what happens is the, is the peaches as they cook, the sugar from the, from the peaches will interact with the almond flour and create like a crumbly crust almost. So you don't need the grain and it, uh, it, it makes a really, really sweet and delicious uh, treat, if you will. I'm going to have to try that. All right. And we are on the chapter about supplements. So Dr. Osborne, tell us what supplements do you recommend? There are a number that I recommend for somebody who's just really trying to get started and improving their health and reducing their pain. But number one on the list is a, is a strong multivitamin. Um, and that's because most people with chronic pain and autoimmunity are malnourished in some way and they need everything. They need the B vitamins. They need the fat soluble vitamins. They need vitamin C. So a really strong multivitamin. Now, if you're taking like a one a day where it's one pill a day, that's not a strong multivitamin. Oh. Um, if a good multivitamin, you're going to need to take anywhere from four to six a day, meaning, meaning otherwise you're not getting that much from it. Uh, the dose is in, or, or it's going to be this big of a pill, right? Um, so to be realistic about it, you want to have a multivitamin that, that you take consecutively with each meal um, so that you're getting strong levels of all of the nutrients in you. But from a pain perspective, we're talking about pain and inflammation, modulating pain. One of my favorites is turmeric. Turmeric is a very potent anti-inflammatory. It's probably one of the most well-researched and most effective. Another one is skullcap. Another one is ginger. Uh, ginger has very, you know, another root vegetable just like turmeric. It's, it has very, very potent anti-inflammatory properties. And, and then beyond turmeric, so turmeric would be my first go-to. And then secondary to that would be um, two things. Number, or I say secondary. You're asking me which one. So, and I, I would throw a lot at somebody if they were in chronic pain. But omega three, concentrated EPA and DHA, has been shown to be more effective at pain reduction, uh, if not just as effective, more effective than ibuprofen and other non-steroidally inflammatories. But you have to have high enough doses. So when we're talking about, you can't just get away with one or two fish oil pills. You've got to take four to six grams, sometimes as many as eight to 10 grams to get those levels high enough to, uh, to have that pain and inflammatory modulating effect. So omega-3 is high on the list of, uh, of supplements that help with pain. Another one is proteolytic enzymes. Proteolytic enzymes, these are basically, these are enzymes that, um, that block and bind and regulate inflammatory processes. So they can be very, very effective. A lot of doctors are using them now for cancer because of the inflammation in cancer, um, but they work remarkably well for chronic joint pain. Uh, they work remarkably well for people with chronic muscle pain. Part of what they do is they help thin the blood, and when you keep the blood nice and thin, mm -hmm. you get better delivery of all the other nutrients into the tissue. So if the blood is thick and sluggish, you know, it, it's not going to push into those deeper tissues, the smaller blood vessels that your heart has to work harder. Sometimes the blood vessels get, you know, basically they get sluggish and, and, and the nutrients can't get through as effectively. So we become malnourished as a result of the blood being too thick. Sugar is one of the things that makes that blood thick. So that's going back to what we said before. But 
Proteolytic enzymes naturally thin the blood and naturally help with pain. Another one that I like a lot for, for pain reduction, and this is more along the lines of just joint, uh, joint pain, is MSM and chondroitin, glucosamine and chondroitin. Probably, um, probably one of the most well-sold over-the-counter supplements of all time is glucosamine and chondroitin, and simply because it works, it's effective. Um, now, caveat to all this, supplements should not be used to control pain. Supplements can be used to improve the quality of life and improve nutrition, but you should not just take supplements without changing your diet and lifestyle, because if you take supplements to mask your pain, it's no better than taking drugs to mask your pain. You're allowing yourself to have a false sense of confidence that the pain is gone or diminished, and you're allowing yourself to continue to make the same lifestyle mistakes that led to the pain in the first place. So very, very important. If you're going to use pain-based supplements to improve your, your quality of life, it's also important that you change your life yeah. so that you're not dependent on those supplements for the rest of it. That makes so much sense. You know, I feel like sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for the kind of changes we can make. And so we continue to feel like, well, I couldn't possibly make those changes. You know, God, Dr. Osborne, you're making, you're saying I can't eat pizza. You're saying I can't go out with my friends and, you know, have a, a nice IHOP lunch. I, I'm just making this stuff up, but you know, if you're listening to this, what's going in your head, right? Oh my God, I cannot do this. And I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. If I could do it, and I was a sugar addict like nobody else out there, if I could do it, you can do it. I think sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for the fact that we absolutely can make these changes and continue down the path with the changes being long-term changes. And so that's where, you, of course, you know, our health boot camps comes in. You know, our health boot camps are designed to help you make that initial very quick, rough transition from kind of where you are here to where you want to be, which is here, which is pain-free, right? Lots of pain, lots of misery, lots of inflammation, leaky gut to pain-free, healthy gut, strong, long, happy life. So you can actually enjoy life. So we give you that little foundation, but you absolutely can do it. On supplements, quick question. I hear um, it's expensive pee. I hear liquids are better than um, the, the, the pills. Um, I hear food-based multivitamins are better than the ones made in a lab. Where do you come out in all of these when there's so many myths around multivitamins? It's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So I feel like sometimes we don't always get the truth about vitamins. Yeah, there's an opinion for every person that you ask, you're going to get one. And um, th here's the way I look at it. I'm a clinician first. So when I'm, when I'm trying to decide what types of things that I'm going to use in my clinic, first of all, there's got to be sound and solid research. If there's not sound and solid research, then, you know, ultimately, I'm not going to entertain it yet, right? Not with my patients. So once I know there's sound and solid research, then it's a matter of what is the research done? What did they research on? So there's different forms of vitamins. There's different forms of nutrients. There are different delivery methodologies, and it depends very much on the person. I have multiple forms of vitamin C in my clinic and my pharmacy simply because the same vitamin C is not the right vitamin C for every person. Okay. I have multiple types of B vitamins. For example, there's for vitamin B12, there's methylcobalamin, there's adenosylcobalamin, there's hydroxycobalamin, there's cyanocobalamin. Which one is right for the person? Depends, and that's part of what we do. We do individualized testing to try to discern which one is right for the person, which one does that person need, what is the dose, what is the delivery that's best for them? Because look, the reality is a, a certain powdered vitamin C might have better deliverability, but if a person's not gonna drink the powder and they're not gonna be compliant with it, the pill is better. Does that make sense? So it depends largely on the person and, and, and their preferences and their, and their capacity to comply. And two, it depends on uh, the uniqueness of what's happening within that person. If their gut is destroyed, we can go orally. We can do IV. We can do injection. So it just varies. Okay. Now that makes a lot of sense. But it also sounds like there isn't one type that's better. So it's not that no liquids are always better than pills. You're saying it just depends on the individual, which is great. Next chapter is all about what else might be causing pain beyond the grain and the food. Dr. Osborne, what have you found in dealing with a lot of your patients? What else causes pain? 
lots of different things, mold toxicity in the environment. If you live, you know, like so many people in Texas in South Texas, we live on the Gulf. Uh, we see it with Georgians in Mississippi and Alabama and Florida, lots of mold, mold in the homes. It can grow in the home emitting mycotoxins that can create chronic illness. That's one thing beyond food, right? We see heavy metals, lead and aluminum and mercury and arsenic and cadmium are very, very common. Thallium toxicity is very, very common. So we see people with heavy metal buildups internally. They bioaccumulate these metals from the environment over the course of their lifetime and their illnesses make it harder to detox. So it's easier for them to accumulate metals once that accumulation begins. And it can be very disruptive of their chemistry, very disruptive of their health. So those are two, probably two of the biggest ones that we always, we wanna make sure that we're testing people for, especially if their history where their home is flooded or, you know, for mold, or if they have a history where they've worked in a factory or if they've worked in an area or they've had more, more shots or vaccinations than the average person. Some of these shots have mercury and cadmium in them. So we wanna, again, we wanna take that history into consideration. But one other thing is food. Food chemicals, so I shouldn't really say food, I should say what, what people get in their food. So food dyes, food preservatives. Mm. Um, there are a number of different compounds and chemicals that are used consistently from day to day in the industry. For example, when you go and you buy a, a jar of pickles at the grocery store, one of the food preservatives is sodium benzoate or benzoic acid, which can, for some people, can pose a very, very big problem. So we also test for those as well. We test to see if persons reactive to food chemicals, if they're reactive to environmental chemicals, what's in their perfume, their cosmetics, et cetera. We wanna know if their exposure to heavy metals is high, and we wanna know if they have mold toxicity. Those are some of the main ones. What about uh, emotions? Have you gone into that area of uh, helping people that might just carry so much emotional baggage that it's manifesting as pain? I have, yeah. I'm actually, I'm a doctor of pastoral science as well. And so we, we oftentimes do get into emotions and lifestyle because it's, for some people, it's just as important as food. And for some people, it's more important. They don't have so much of a food problem, but they're in an abusive relationship. They're in a job that sucks their soul every day and they're just not happy in their fulfillment and their purpose in life. Or they've got some past traumatic history that they haven't coped with or they haven't dealt with efficiently or effectively. So emotional trauma can be a major, major contributing factor to these folks as well. Great, all right, well the next one, we're talking about how to pick the right doctor. Dr. Osborne, so where do you start? Where does a patient who says, I'm so full of pain, no one can diagnose me, and I have friends, I have friends, kids who are in that state right now. What do you recommend? How does someone go about finding the right doctor to help them? You know, that's a tough question because in functional medicine, there are, there are a few major training programs across the United States. There's no official residency for doctors. There's no official internships for doctors. So it's all pretty much done postgraduate. Um, and so what you're looking for is you're, you, first of all, you're asking around with family and friends. Who do you know? Who's got a, who's got a reputation? Who, who has actual past clientele or past patients that can speak on that doctor's behalf? Because nothing speaks louder than results. Yes. Secondly, we definitely want to see what kind of training the doctors have. In medical training is not a necessity. A lot of people think medical doctors are smarter. A lot of people think that medical doctors are, are somehow better educated. And, and disclaimer, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a chiropractor. I'm a, I'm a doctor of pastoral science. I'm board certified in clinical nutrition. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that disclaimer, so I'm not a medical doctor, and I'm not saying that medical doctors are bad or that there aren't smart functional medicine doctors that are medical doctors too. It's just that the training for a medical doctor versus, let's say, the training for a chiropractor or a naturopath is vastly different in the sense of natural medicine. And so a medical doctor is actually at a disadvantage unless they go to school a lot longer in a postgraduate fashion to get that experience and to get that education because it's not at all taught in medical school. Nutrition is not even a class that's taught in medical school. The average doctor gets less than seven hours of nutritional training. Yeah. And the seven hours that they get is not nutritional training. It's anti-nutritional training. It's how bad is nutrition? It doesn't really do much, so don't worry about it so much. And, and make sure, you, no, I'm serious. That's the training that, that most medical schools have. So understand that if you're seeking a medical doctor because you have the, this false belief that somehow a medical doctor is somehow better versed in functional medicine, you might be looking in the wrong location. 
That being said, there's some great medical doctors who are also functional medicine doctors. So look for doctors trained in functional medicine, and that will usually be somewhere on their website or somewhere in their, in their name, right? If you look in, at the initials behind their name, um, some doctors will make a claim that they're, that they're certified through Functional Medicine University. It's one of the places I went. I also went and, and got a diplomate with the American Clinical Board of Nutrition. Some doctors will claim uh, expertise through in the Institute for Functional Medicine or the Institute for Integrative Medicine. So there are different training programs that are out there. So just make sure that the doctor has gone through one of these training programs. And then the next one is, the next and the most important question to ask is, because the doctor could be in practice 30 years, but 25 years into practice, they decided to do functional medicine. Right. Don't, don't base the length of, of time the doctor's been in practice and don't make the assumption that all of those years of practice experience are functional medicine experience. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of doctors are jumping ship from medicine onto the functional medicine side and they're brand new at it. They're green behind the ears and they may not be the the most experienced and that you know look everybody has to start somewhere right but yeah. if you're chronically ill and you're looking for somebody who's vastly experienced then the question that you want to ask is does the doctor have functional medicine certification yes and how long has the doctor had that certification and how long has the doctor been implementing functional medicine in their practice because there's some doctors who are certified in functional medicine i have one next door to me who don't practice functional medicine. So they have the certification, but they don't really practice by it. So it's important, this is why it's important to ask a neighbor, ask a friend, ask a relative if they know someone. Because honestly, in the entire country of the United States, I could probably say there are somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 500 functional medicine doctors that are good and experienced that actually practice functional medicine. So there's not a lot of them, no. That's a really small number. Is that directory available somewhere? So someone can say, look, I don't have any friend that knows any functional doctor. What do I do? Where, and to your point, I've, that was me two and a half years ago. And they said, well, I'll go to the website, you know, the Functional Medicine Training Institute's website, and you'll find a doctor there. But there's so little information. There's nothing curated which says, hey, here's exactly what you just said. Here's the four to 500 doctors that are available and you can trust them because they've actually been practicing. Where is that information? There isn't a place. There's no accumulated place. I mean, I train doctors in postgraduate. We actually have doctors coming in next week to, to shadow me. And so what I try to do is I try to, I try to have a place, of, and it's my foundation, glutenfreesociety.org. Uh, there's, a, there's a tab at the top that says doctors. Okay. And if you click on that, there's a map. And so we try to map some of the ones that have come through some of our training. But even with that, so just that, that you know, even with that, just because they've come and done some training, it, it's still, you still want to ask those questions because a doctor can do the training, but if they don't apply the training, then they don't gain the wisdom and experience from the application of the training. And that's, that's what makes a doctor great is the application of knowledge and the gaining of experience from that, from that application. Because, you know, the old saying, knowledge without application is useless, Right. So you can go through a training program. You can read a book on how to rebuild a motor, but if you've never rebuilt a motor and you have no experience with motor building other than the book you read, you're not going to be very good at it in the real world when variables occur, right? Exactly. No, that's, that's so helpful. And maybe at some point you'll consider creating that directory. The next chapter, which is what is this 30-day program going to look like for me? So Dr. Osborne, you break the program into two parts, right? The, the first 15 days and then the, the final 15 days. Talk us a little bit through the first 15 days. It's, it, think of it as, as like um, if somebody hasn't exercised in 10 years, we're not going to send them to the CrossFit gym and have them do a massive workout, right? So the first 15 days is kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the no grain, no pain plan light. Okay. What we're really trying to do is eliminate some of the big categorical elements of food, the sugar, the dairy, the grain, the big things that we know we're going to move the needle very quickly for them. The, the whole intent of the first 15 days is that a person experiences a benefit and they make the connection in their mind that changing their diet can change their outcomes, mm -hmm. right? And so once that 15-day time is over and they do notice a change and an improvement, then the rest of the rules come in the next phase. And those rules are a little bit more rigid and a little bit more stringent. We're cutting out legumes. We're cutting out certain types of nightshades and other types of foods that can also be chronic cause chronic inflammation and pain. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so it's not just grain. So your program actually excludes uh, nightshades and legumes as well. 
It does. It does. And it eliminates seeds as well. So, you know, again, it's, it's the second, the second half of the, of the program is a lot more aggressive okay. but because we want to first make sure that they understand that it, that there can be a big impact so that they're not such a skeptic going in and saying, going into the program in the beginning saying, there's just no way I can do it. And I quit. Right. So when I introduce them to the concept, when they feel a, bit, a, a lot better and they feel a difference, then we introduce them to the next level of that concept and they make another leap and bound in their improvement. What do you think of the keto diet? And is your plan similar to a keto diet? No, a keto diets are great if they're necessary. So there's the people that really benefit from keto or um, chronic diabetics who can't get their blood sugar under control. People with cancer uh, do really well in a ketogenic diet. People with neurological diseases, autoimmune neurological diseases like MS and ALS do really well. Um, epileptic seizure disorders do really well on a ketogenic diet. It's actually, that's where the ketogenic diet predominantly comes from, is from studies and research done on epileptics, because it, it, it does so well at helping them control seizures. What is your diet similar to in that case? Like if someone's listening and going, okay, so what is my second, you know, what are my first 15 days going to look like? And what are my last 15 days going to look like? Is it more like a paleo? Like, is there a particular diet that it's similar to in terms of what you've removed? Yeah, I, I would say probably one of the closest closest would be, you could say like a close to paleo so okay. think of it as paleo plus because it's not just paleo and a lot of what's out there on paleo is wrong uh if we look at who created paleo lauren cordain is is the doctor who created paleo and a lot of people have bastardized his diet and they've created things that that are in the paleo diet for example coffee coffee's a legume coffee it's bean juice when you're drinking coffee you're drinking bean juice and so if you're following a paleo diet and you're drinking coffee you're not really following a paleo diet but there's so many people out there yeah. recommending you know coffee with 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 butter and with everything else and they think they're on a paleo diet and they're not following a paleo diet so to be clear it's closer to a paleo diet but there are additional things beyond that paleo diet that uh, that are necessary for people with chronic autoimmunity and it comes with recipes. So let's talk a little bit about your book um, for these particular 30-day programs. So it includes recipes. Do you recommend two days in intermittent fasting? I recommend intermittent fasting if a person can tolerate intermittent fasting. A lot of people who are diabetic or are hyper, hypoglycemic don't do so well with intermittent fasting at first. So I don't want to throw too much at them. But one of the fastest ways to alleviate pain is fasting. Um, if you can get away with a 24 to 48 hour fast, um, it actually has more uh, therapeutic bang than anything else that you could do. Uh, because if the, especially if the, if the pain is being caused by food. So think of it like this. If the pain is being caused by food, then not eating takes away what causes the pain. So you experience the quickest benefit by not eating. However, the catch 22 is you can't fast forever, right? So then when you start re reintroducing food, you've got to know what to reintroduce so as not to create a massive inflammatory response when you reintroduce food. But this is not a fasting diet per se, right? No, it's not. It's not a fasting diet. There's some sections in there about fasting and strategies on intermittent fasting because, again, it's a 30-day program. And, you know, to get into advanced fasting strategies, really a lot of that stuff should be done under supervision from somebody who's experienced in fasting. Absolutely. But this program can be done without supervision, so someone who can just pick up your book and just follow it along. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. Other than the recipes, is there anything else that's included in the program that you want them to do like supplements, et cetera? Yeah. So there's a, there's a supplement protocol that they can follow. We, we included the different supplements that we recommend. Okay. And so between supplements and diet change, we also talk about exercise and the importance of uh, what I like to call the seven fundamental habits. You've got to have sleep. You've got to have sunshine, exercise, clean air, clean water, stress management, the right food, and you got to have love. You got to have love in your life. Those are very, very important healing factors. And if any one of those things are missing, then, you know, it can derail part of your progress. Sounds like Rena's health pyramid, because that's what I've come up with. It's, uh, we've misunderstood the cause of disease completely. We, we think it's all about the food and it's not. It's about really six other things. And love's right there. Stress is right there. Sleep is right there. And if you don't have the entire pyramid at work, um, you can't change anything but just changing out your food. Like it really is a comprehensive program that needs to be uh, adopted by you. Any last parting advice for someone who is in pain and really looking to turn their life around, looking to get to a life without pain? What is the one recommendation that you would make? Never give up. Hope. 
It's the number one element. If you, if you are without hope, you are hopeless. And by definition, you will never succeed. So you've got to keep your chin up and know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Look, there are a lot of books. There are a lot of programs. There are a lot of smart doctors and smart people in this world that we live in. And they're all right. Their experiences and their, and their shared wisdoms are all correct. And so you have to find the one that resonates with you and you have to keep hope at the forefront of your thoughts and you have to push forward and you have to understand that your changes in behavioral, uh, your changes in lifestyle and behavior are a necessity to get to where you want to be. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise, because if they do, they're trying to sell you something, whether it's a supplement or a drug. Um, you know, you're, you're the one who has the power to make the changes and to get better. No one else has that power, but there are people that can guide you through that process. I love that. That is so profound. And, and yes, you can, you absolutely can make that change that you need to make to get your life back. And exactly as you said, I think there's so many different books and options out there. I personally believe, Hey, try them all, you know? Keep doing it until you figure it out. And this is just a 30-day program. So again, why not try it? Try it. See, see how much better you feel. And if it doesn't work, that's great. If it works, you're on to enjoying a life that's pain-free. How can you not give it a shot? So with that said, we wrap up our book masterclass on No Grain, No Pain. I hope you watch the entire series. Share it with your friends. Share it with someone who you know is suffering from pain. We shouldn't have to suffer from pain. I'm pain-free, and I'm telling you, it is the best way to be. So with that said, stay smiling. Dr. Peter Osborne, keep doing the amazing work you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, and thanks for having me on. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.